Today, I'm talking with Jonathan Levy, head of the Global Learning and Development team at Autodesk. Jonathan is an exceptionally talented program designer, trainer, and facilitator. He's smart, intuitive, agile, creates great rapport, and people seek him out to work with. Jonathan has also had a truly transformative career journey. He began his career as a lawyer, then moved to a training company, owner, and consultant, and is now head of the global learning team at Autodesk. He is also a certified coach. The common thread among all of those career journeys has been his curiosity and self-growth. Jonathan is a great example of agile career transition and doing work that matters to him. He is both a people person and an organizational design and development person. Jonathan is also one of the most loving, giving, and engaging people I know. He devotes time to his family, interests, and is an avid bike adventure traveler. So let's see how Jonathan Levy does it all. Hello, Jonathan. Hey, Jeff. It's great to be here with you. Terrific. Well, let's get started um, with, can you tell me about your current role and what it is you're doing? Sure, Jeff. Well, first, I also want to thank you for the opportunity uh, and you reaching out to me because one of the things, you're such a poster child for lifelong learning and pursuing your passions, including the book, that it was really uh, uh, great for you to reach out and I'm happy to be here. So my current role, Jeff, is I'm the head of learning and development at Autodesk, which is a large software company. And in this case, by learning and development, I really mean all of the non technical learning that happens at the company uh, falls under the broad heading of learning and development. So that's everything from the skills and tools that employees and managers need to be effective in their jobs, the skills and tools that people need to be effective in terms of being on teams and collaborating with other people, and really a host of other leadership offerings. So that's my role. Now, more broadly, and I think what's perhaps most interesting given your book and also the types of things I'm thinking about, that role, although it's based in learning, of course, one of the things I get to focus on is how do we support each other, and in my case, Autodesk employees, in really learning the lifelong skills that they will need to grow and develop in what has become an incredibly fast-changing uh, ever-evolving world. And as part of that, one of my personal passions and focus is really teaching people how to build that muscle of self-development as they go through any path of their career. That's great. Um, well, Jonathan, let's look at your career. Um, you're a great example of an entrepreneurial mindset to career navigation. Of course, we focus a lot on career navigation and taking ownership of your career in the interconnected individual. Can you describe your own entrepreneurial mindset, having worked both as an entrepreneur and on the corporate side? Sure, Jeff. Well, well first, I also want to uh, give you a shout out for the book that you wrote uh, and how you really uh, pose some great questions about this, because I think there's so many different ways of thinking about career and thinking about entrepreneurial mindset. Let me give you my flavor of that. For me, uh, I guess at the heart of, for me, whether I was building, well, actually, whether I, when I was practicing law, which was my first career, whether when I was a consultant in training, or now 
in my 10th year at Autodesk internally, I, when I thought about this question, there are really two things that I'd say inform my mindset, which is relationship and value. And let me tell you what I mean. In terms of relationship, I never forget that really that's what the heart of business is about, right? Business is working by, through, and with people. And to me, this type of relationship building, though, is very specific. It's about getting to know people as they are, not trying to necessarily get something back uh, from them. And what I mean is I've always gone about my work, Jeff, so that I treat an executive assistant the same way I do his or her boss. And I treat an entry-level employee the same attention of focus as I do more senior people. So for me, somewhere at that heart of relationship, including the people who report to me, is that they feel a level of being seen and caring. And in a moment, I'll give you an example, I think, that illustrates why that's so important. And two, value. You know, especially in an evolving, changing world, yeah, it's about relationship, but, but all of us, no matter what our role, I think always got to be asking ourselves the question of how and where do we offer value to our colleagues and to the business? And in order to do that, I always say the key is to understand the heart of the problem. And Jeff, you'll probably smile at this, but we know that, right, what people often present as being the problem right, isn't really the problem at all. It's the symptom of the problem. So really right. becoming, right, good with that is a part of the value that we bring. Jeff, do you think it'd be helpful if I gave an example? Yes, I was going to ask you to do that, so you're right ahead of me. That's <laughs> okay. correct. So here's what I mean about relationship and value. So I'm going to go back to a time when um, I owned my own business, right? So I was doing training uh, in Silicon Valley. And I, and I really always approached it, you know, and this is the continuation of that theory of relationship, that if I took care of people and built relationships based on just getting to know folks and based on trust and adding value, that things would really just work out over time. Um, and I also knew that that was intrinsically satisfying for me. So here's an example where for years, I taught a program that was very successful at a large high-tech company in the Valley. It was part of my business, you know, probably my biggest client. And there was someone I had consulted with who worked at that company who had brought me in. Uh, and a few times, uh, he reached out to me you know, for advice on this and that. And uh, I just liked him. So you know, we talked. I never charged for that advice. Sometimes it would take a day or two. And you know, classic business logic would probably be you should be charging for that. I mean, you've added value. But I was just like, you know, I wasn't focused on that. Several years later, though, uh, when uh, this person had moved companies, they reached out and asked me if I could bring my content into that new company, which turned into a new contract. Now, here's what's key, though, and this is kind of the finesse. This wasn't a strategy. I didn't treat this person one way because I was like sure that business would come of it. I just treated the person that way because I wanted to add value and I knew that building relationships was kind of at the heart of things. Not every relationship resulted in more business. But my point is that was kind of my entrepreneurial brand. It worked for me in the long term even though, like I said, it was counter maybe to some of the business advice that was out there about being much more bottom line driven as 
being the tactic itself. Does that make sense, Jeff? It makes perfect sense. And if I could dr drill down, Jonathan, yeah. um, you know, Adam Grant wrote a book, Givers and Takers, and mm -hmm. organizations have both givers and takers. And sometimes the givers keep giving and the takers keep taking. Yeah. You have offered a, a vision of relationship and value. Mm -hmm. How do you determine whether or not someone is, um, I won't use the word worthy, but yeah. is, you, you, you must be discriminating. <laughs> Otherwise you would be giving all of this to everyone. How, do you, how would you recommend people determine that for themselves? That, well, first of all, thanks for the question. That's a great one. And you're right, there is no simple formula. So, so I guess it's like a trust but verify type of thing. And if I, I've never really thought about this. I start from a position of trust that everybody's kind of worthy of that. But again, uh, I'm, I'm also open to eyes. Yeah, I was in business. I had bills to pay, employees to make sure they were taken care of. So, so I guess it was just more a mindset, Jeff, of how I would approach relationships. But obviously, if people kind of showed that they, like in my example, right, there were several conversations, but that person in turn was, was giving to me. I got mm -hmm. something from those exchanges. Right. I could feel into and sense that you know what, by not just the things they said, but, but the other connections, perhaps, that they were making for me internally, that there was some type of reciprocity. But my point is the reciprocity isn't always one-to-one. -one. So, right. so I hope I'm answering your questions. I guess, uh, to summarize, I just would give trust initially, but then, you know, determine from the relationship, to your point, where it felt reciprocated, and therefore I would give even more. Versus the other extreme, like, wow, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that again. And, uh, you know, would kind of discontinue and find other avenues to, to give my generosity to, for lack of a better words. Well, you know, um, Jonathan, as we, we don't have the time to talk about your great role as a mentor, but in mentoring, um, there is a reciprocity and the mentor and the mentee have a relationship that is mutually beneficial mm. and um, is a great enhancement to one's career. But there is that sense of uh, the giving back or the get play, paying forward. That's part of what that relationship is. Absolutely. Now, Jonathan, a lot of people would not know from listening to you and how laid back you sound that you actually work extraordinarily hard. You are engaged, certainly in the years at Autodesk, with a very, very challenging workload, uh, travel, uh, spontaneous assignments, uh, dealing with problems. You work extraordinarily hard, and many people would burn out very quickly doing just some of the things that you do. So can you talk about what motivates, excites, and fulfill you in your work that you can generate your own interest and your own enthusiasm to keep going? And <laughs> I'm smiling because, uh, yeah, you kind of captured it. This week is one of those, uh, shall we say, exciting weeks where there are so many things going on. So sure. it's, uh, I'm just breathing, pausing to reflect on the question. Um, you know, it's interesting, Jeff, because what you preceded the question with talking about mentorship and the two-way exchange that happens there, I think is at the heart of what fulfills me at this stage in my career. And it's helping, when I say others grow and succeed, there's also now an organizational component to that, right? Because mm -hmm. you know, I get to impact an entire organization. But, you know, if I go back uh, somewhere 
years ago, when I thought about my mission statement, like what am I about at a deeper level? It really came down to helping others discover and apply their own wisdom. You know, like that idea that, especially in the role of facilitator or coach, it's not just to tell people what to do, but it's being an activator where people get to show up and realize what their hidden strengths are or their strengths are and helping them to really not just understand them, but then to feel confident enough to bring them out more fully in the world. That really motivates me. And at the same time, and I just had one, one of those conversations today, in fact, um, with an old colleague um, who I had mentored, helping people really understand uh, the weaker areas and what is the impact that that's having, and then more importantly, how they can make shifts so that they can have a broader impact in the world. Um, and you know, that's what's interesting at this point in my career, I'm finding and, and what energizes me is over time when you run a team, you, you t if, if you lead by trust, which is what I say, and you lead by reciprocity, I've kind of built up a lot of equity in those relationships. So now if something's wrong or broken or not working, I mean, I'm just very direct and can have that conversation much more quickly than earlier in my career. And I guess that brings a lot of satisfaction to me. And then finally, and I'll pause, see if you have a question back to me, Jeff. Mm -hmm. When I think of this though to scale, what energizes me is designing programs then. And for example, at Autodesk, Autodesk is such a great place to work because they invest in leadership and they've invested in a residential leadership program. And what I love about this program, which I got to redesign uh, about four or five years ago, is people go to that course, and in the exact same activity, five people in the room can have five different outcomes or experiences of where they need to grow. And you know, it's immensely satisfying when you bump into people and they share the impact that a program like that has had on their professional life. So netting it out, Jeff, I think that's what keeps me motivated at this point is the idea that I can help, whether it's an entire company or organization or the people who report to me, really grow, develop, and discover even more about themselves. Beautifully put. And um, if I could just drill down on something that you are probably more familiar with than most of us, there seems to be a paradox. Mm -hmm. One is you build relationships over time and you build that equity, as you've stated. Mm -hmm. Yet in the industry in Silicon Valley and the tech world, people are kind of come and go every year, two years. The, <laughs> you, you know, IBM used to be 30 years. Now the average is five years for IBM. And you can imagine with Google and mm -hmm. Facebook, et cetera, people are moving around constantly and they're working on gigs and projects, et cetera. So in a way, do they carry their relationships regardless of the organization and build it over time? And is that a different way than say in a law firm where people work together for 30 years and that equity is built up within the same organization? And how does one in career build those relationships yet recognize that people are transient today? Yeah. Hmm. Wow, Jeff, you're asking all the hard questions, which I like. <laughs> um, well, well, let's look at that. Let me, my immediate reaction is to break that down into two different axes. The second one doesn't come to me now, but the first one is, or two different ways of approaching it. I think you hit a good point. That one of the skills, though, and a skill, quite frankly, that I've been, 
that I'm working on, right? And I don't think it, it will ever be done is how do you build those trusting relationships even more quickly? Because yeah. you know, if you look at like the tour, the, the book that talks about tours of duty, especially if people entering the workplace, you know, 12 to 18 months might be a great tour of duty. And then they're going to reevaluate, you're going to reevaluate. And keeping people on shouldn't be the litmus test of success because for many people to grow their career, they need to move on, right? Yeah. Yeah. So one axis is I think it's really incumbent on leaders and all of us in our lives to find out and be on the journey of how do you, uh, in a, in a uh, transparent, open, and positive way, not a user's way, build trusting relationships quickly. Because we don't always have the luxury of, uh, forget 30 years, five years, right? Exactly. So, but, so I don't think, but I think uh, anecdotally that can happen quickly. I mean, ironically, look at when people say, you know, oh, you're not going to believe this. I sat down on an airplane with a total stranger and they told that person things that they haven't told their spouse or their boss for sure. You see what I'm saying? So it's, my yeah. point is we got to rethink a little bit about what is the proper context and what does it take to build a trusting relationship. Okay. The second piece, though, which does go to longevity, you know, there are relationships in our careers. Not everybody's going to become a lifelong relationship, but I know from talking to you too, Jeff, and you're really good at this. You know, there's some people who you meet along the way and it is a lost art. We may not write letters anymore, but I think it's incumbent on us to realize that a career will go over hopefully an extended time. That although not everybody can kind of remain in our orbit, I think people don't put enough time on, on maintaining relationships. The other aspect of this is that people, uh, all of us actually, uh, could do probably a better job or at least increase our focus in maintaining relationships over time. And as, as I was saying, it's not that everybody we meet or everybody who works for us will become a lifelong acquaintance, yet over time, there are people we meet who should, and, and it will take some effort, we should cultivate to remain a part of our broader network. So my point is that it's not that hard to do that. So if you meet somebody and you know they have an interest, you send them an article. Or periodically reaching out to people and including them in a discussion or a meeting that you're going to. So I think that's the other part of it in this new world where relationships are a little bit more transitory is figuring out who you want to keep those relationships with and then doing some simple things to make that happen. And, and Jeff, I know that's a part of what you do. And in fact, it's why we're sitting here on this call right now, right. which makes me smile, right? Right, right. Thank you. Uh, now, um, when we're talking about lifelong learning, and it's interesting because there's lifelong relationships and there's <laughs> lifelong value, and now we're talking about lifelong learning. Uh, you most recently immersed in the technology field with Autodesk, um, really over the last 10 years. and um, so you're immersed in technology, but you're also had career in law and as a trainer in which the technology was perhaps less of a focus. And now we're moving into the era of AI and platforms and mm -hmm. uh, technology is becoming more and more important as augmentation of work. So what advice do you have for working professionals who want to incorporate systems thinking, technology skill sets, collaborative communications techniques? Um, and you probably know what other things will add value uh, to their own lifelong learning program. 
Yeah. Well, well, this is a, such a such a deep and important question. And and to read it, to reiterate, Jeff, that what's in your book and what others have written about my context in answering this question is that the world is changing so quickly that knowledge is becoming outdated more quickly. And because it's ubiquitous, right? It's free. And therefore, the, the value in a way of fixed degrees, I'm not saying don't go to college, but we just can't depend on that anymore because this idea that we have a certain set learning is diminishing. And I think that that's, that trend's only going to accelerate over time. So back to lifelong learning, I think then that one of the biggest values we should all be thinking about in this world where our knowledge is, is uh, again, happening, uh, we got to keep updating ourselves on that, is, again, back to my earlier point, where do we add value? How do we make connections between people, information, and process in a world that's changing very quickly? I think that's one whole area. I think another area, Jeff, and you and I have talked about this over time, is that one of the biggest skill sets is the ability to learn and recreate ourselves as a skill set, right? The idea of agile learning. Right. Um, so, you know, there's so many different things that people could be thinking about, but I'll, I'll give you two things I think about. In terms of learning, uh, I'm really big on the idea that it's important for us to create feedback loops. And what I mean by that, to find ways where we can reach out to colleagues or even other people to get input on how, by the way, that could be as easy as getting people to look at documents we've written all the way to give us feedback when we speak or present, that type of thing. And I think that Marshall Goldsmith, who's a coach out there, he wrote a great book about what got us here won't get us there. And he talks a lot about getting feed forward as opposed to feedback. Uh, and I think if people looked into that type of work, if we built more feedback loops into our own learning, that will help us be more agile uh, learners. And then one other idea, and then I'd love to hear uh, any reactions you have, Jeff, is uh, you know, a while back I heard uh, someone speak who also wrote a book. His name is Jeff Colvin, C-O-L-V-I-N. And he wrote a book called Humans Are Underrated. And his main thesis is that all the people who try to prognosticate and guess about what computers will and will not be able to do into the future have been off the mark because computers are able to get smarter and smarter. So he essentially says that's a fool's errand. Instead of figuring out what computers can't do, we as human beings should start to focus our lifelong learning on what are the types of skills and the value-added things that humans will want from another human being, regardless of if the computer can do it. And right. here he talks about things like storytelling, you know, being a kind of human thing. He starts talking about certain services, empathy, you know, a whole bunch of soft skills. So he's actually a big advocate, interestingly, indirectly, of growing our more softer human capabilities as being the value add to a lot of future work. Does that, does that kind makes, of- Makes so much sense. And you know, um, Kevin Wheeler, who is uh, one of the people that we've interviewed for the podcast is made, and he runs an organization, The Future of Work, mm -hmm. uh, is the future of talent, is that um, 
in the past, recruiters were looking for engineers and people who could, you know, code and people who could uh, do the work. In the future, it's going to be collaborators and people who are good communicators uh, mm -hmm. in terms of, because so much of what engineers do will be taken over by AI or augmented by AI. So this idea of team building, which I know is a focus of your whole career, um, leads me to the question of if people have to learn how to critique, how to listen, how to give what you call feed forward rather than yeah. feedback. That's a skill that we really don't learn in school and we really don't learn uh, unless we actively pursue it. So maybe you can give some thoughts about that aspect of learning to listen rather than learning to speak as mm -hmm. our focus. By the way, I'm pausing because that's such a, such a powerful question. Um, you know, uh, it's funny, I'm, I'm, I'm preparing to talk as we speak about, you know, learning about how we receive, how we receive or listen, for lack of a better word. And, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about that, right? Because the act of listening is itself uh, kind of a quiet act. And obviously, there's what we respond with. But there's some great work by someone named Jim Tam. And he wrote a book a long time ago called Radical Collaboration. But mm -hmm. I'd invite your... Uh, anybody listening to this who's interested in uh, the single most important thing to be a more effective collaborator and to be a more effective team player, at least according to Jim Tam, and I think it's very compelling. If you Google him and find his TED Talk, it's 18 minutes, and it's funny, he talks about red and green zone chickens, but the bottom line when you net it out, it's about managing our own defensiveness. Mm. Managing our own defensiveness. So what happens between someone sharing something to us and us responding, we all know if we get defensive. And what's so funny about Jim is he's identified a list of 50 different ways we get defensive, <laughs> right? <laughs> he's very specific. And we're kind of artful at this, but the bottom line is by managing that, uh, that gives us, that's the reason why I went to that is those are the table stakes to then shifting to something more productive, which will be natural, curiosity, listening, you know, two-way engagement. But the moment we're defensive, we're kind of pushing people away, whether intentionally or not. We become less smart. We become less capable of problem solving. Our blood pressure becomes elevated. All of those things. So managing defensiveness is the single biggest thing I think that we can actively take on, which will naturally lead to just being a more effective listener. Because once you take that away, our human drive is curiosity, connection, and learning more. What a beautiful way to phrase it. And, you know, um, I had mentioned in my introduction of you that you are a coach, as I am, and much of our training is in listening and intuitive listening and listening for emotion and awareness and consciousness. And so much of what we do is help others discover uh, connections for themselves in a way where we take ourselves out of the equation and managing our own defensiveness or our uh, own ego. Yeah. It is a very difficult thing to do, but what a beautiful target for our own development. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, and, and it's a journey, right? It's not something we're ever done with, which is kind of neat. I mean, if we want to go on the arc of that around listening, there's so many courses on public speaking. I have yet to hear or see the course on, on public listening. <laughs> well, I, I, parenthetically, I've just uh, created a 20-minute 
uh, video that will be on my website on listening skills, nine listening skills. Oh. So that, that'll be a plug free, free <laughs> for everybody to, to work on their listening. There you go. Well, well you have written it. So yeah. I stand to be corrected. Thanks, yeah. Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jonathan, um, as you view your own career, what lessons learned are most important that you would like to communicate to others? As you know, we, we understand the world in the rearview mirror. Um, mm -hmm. And so maybe some of your reflection on um, what are those lessons that you've learned? You've already talked about a number of them, but maybe there's some others you can tell. Sure. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell this maybe in a, uh, in a different kind of flavor than the answers to my other question. This would be a little bit uh, perhaps more personal. But, you know, I think that we all have a deeper inner guidance that really fuels even the arc of our life journey. And the better we know this, the more conscious we can be about the choices we make. So in my life, the conscious arc of my journey was always one where I wanted to seek the middle path. You know, I was always someone who wanted really a balance somewhere between what I considered a more spiritual journey in the world where an outer life, I knew I wanted a family, I wanted a life that valued relationship and meaning. And as general as those things, those actually did fuel a lot of my choices, both good and bad. And, and I'll tell you from that place, though, and like you said, in hindsight, I'll give you a th few things I learned. The first thing I learned uh, was actually by going to law school, which, which was not a good choice, by the way, for me, because I did it to please others. I did it because I was good at it intellectually. But once I got into that life and I practiced law for five years, I realized this job has nothing to do with the arc of my life. I don't like conflict. I don't want to put all my life energy into my job. The rules and structure that that, that practice caused in me were kind of killing my spirit. So it was kind of, a, what do you call it, a uh, interesting start. Uh, I spent combined eight to nine years of my life, but nothing's wasted, right? I mean, there were things I learned from that. The second thing I learned, though, was that once I realized that I wanted to leave that, the second thing I learned, though, is sometimes it takes more than one move to go towards something you love. So what I mean is I went from law to training and teaching, which by the way, that, I mean, my heart and my spirit just opened that I was home there, mm -hmm. but no one was going to hire me right, right after eight years of being a law to teach coaching classes. So, so in other words, the two moves were I went into training, so I was no longer practicing law, but I started using that legal background and design legal management classes. So I, that's, that was a really big lesson that, ah, I was, I was moving in the direction of where I wanted to move. And by the way, I love that teaching. And it was while in those same companies, right, teaching these legal management trainings where I got turned on to coaching, to all the other disciplines I could be a part of. And that was really my third lesson that, you know, uh, that by taking that one step, the other steps started to emerge, but there were never things I could have planned out all at once. In other words, as I stepped towards training, then I was led to coaching, then I was led to OD work. Those things all happen naturally, but they would have never happened unless I took that first step. And I'd say for me then, uh, that's kind of, again, looking back, it's set in a direction and really be open to the paths 
that emerged because I never envisioned going inside a corporation. Um, but, you know, going to Autodesk opened up so many doors that I would have never thought of. So I'm not exactly sure, Jeff, if that's what you're looking at, but I'd say that's looking back, that's kind of my arc and how my career kept moving more in alignment with who, who I was and how I wanted to be in the world, but it took a long time to get there. Well, you know, Jonathan, since I know you so well, without getting into any of the details, you've also managed to balance your whole life. You have a spiritual side, you have a family side, you're devoted to your kids and their activities. And so, so many people wrestle with this who are immersed in their careers and who are successful as you are. Do you have some thoughts about lessons learned as you look back on how you were able to devote so much time to your own personal self, whether it was spirituality or biking or however you wanted to, uh, whatever you wanted to do that enabled you to be the person that you wanted to be, but also your relationship with others in having um, love in your life. Mm. Mm. Well, you know, Jeff, it's funny, I, you know, because we both live in Marin County, and I, and I recently went to a class up at Spirit Rock called Right Livelihood, okay? Mm. And one of the things I realized, by the way, not, I don't think it was conscious, is, and I'll answer the part of your question like this, to me, what I ultimately realized is the spiritual part of my life, the spiritual journey I was on in terms of how I wanted to grow was not a separate journey than my work journey. In other words, work is actually the best context and form, I believe, to really grow as a person. And I grew immensely by taking on some of the really tough work challenges. And I don't mean intellectual, I mean with people that shifted fundamentally all the relationships in my life with my family of origin, with my family at home. Does that make sense? So, so in other words, the more you can look at those things as being integrated with me, they were a hundred percent. Those became one and the same thing. So I wasn't like, Oh, if I do this work, I can't do my kind of interpersonal work. So that's right. one thing that I think the more we can combine those and see them as one, the more fulfilled we'll be. But secondly, I think you're right. And I don't have a magic answer. I will, I will be, uh, as you know, it's, it's a challenge. And I don't think balance to me ever looked like a steady state of balance. It looks like peaks of being very out of balance in the work front and then maybe swinging to the other side in my life. The most I can say is, uh, you know, I, I would just do my best and, and not let things get out of hand. So in other words, if I said to myself, okay, I've got this project and I'm going to be really out of balance for a month, I would set some guardrails so that just did not become my steady state. And by the way, the guardrail could be, you know what, I'm going to do this for a month, but then I'm going to take a day off in the middle of the week and I'm going to go pick my kid up at school or I'm going to take a vacation. Or I'm... And some people say, well, how did you do that? Well, you know, it, I, just, I just really worked to make that happen, but I don't want to make it sound like it was always balanced in any given moment. It was just over the arc of given periods of time. I tried to make sure that I was really prioritizing those things. But as you know, Jeff, with the family, you know, I, looking back, I, I always feel in a weird way like I could have done more. I'm grateful mm -hmm. for the times that I had with my family, but there's part of me that's like, wow, I, I wish I had even done more. Well, you've done a great deal, as, as mm -hmm. I do know. And uh, the term that I use for what you're talking about is creating parentheses. You know, you create a parentheses by giving yourself a gift of whatever it is that brings you joy. And rather Absolutely. than defer it, 
mm-hmm. plan for it, you know, plan for that day off, plan for that yeah. opportunity to take a walk with somebody in the middle of your day yeah. or whatever it is. Exactly. And, and, you know, can I add one more little thing that I think sure. is important? I, yeah. And, you know, the thing that this was most important to me to work really hard and not get out of balance and everybody will have a different thing. What I realized I needed to do was to exercise consistently. Mm. So, for example, when I started Autodesk and I was fresh, I was like, okay, now I had to stretch to do it. I'm going to be at that gym at 6 a.m. every day. And, you know, I can't say I did it every day, but the whole, my whole professional life, I have prioritized exercise. But, and here's where people get in the trap. They're like, well, how do you have time to do that? And I'm like, look, that is what actually enables me. And it's not in my mind. It's real because I've gone through periods of not. That's what enables me to be productive, to be more grounded and be a better person. Those are tremendous value adds, even from a work perspective. So I'm going to be more efficient if I work out. And the problem for most people is they put that off. And then in the times of high stress, where you actually need that the most, that they're, they're not doing it at all. So my point is you've got to put money in that bank, whatever it is for you, playing music, exercising consistently. It doesn't have to be a big amount of time, but whatever that thing for you is, guard that jealously because otherwise you're really not uh, going to be uh, successful in the long term. That's beautifully put. So Jonathan, in the interest of time, we've got to stop here, but I'll just reflect that for anyone listening, if you can have people like Jonathan Levy in your life, uh, you should embrace them and retain them and cultivate those relationships because the harvest is over time in having these, pe- these kinds of people in your life. And I've been blessed to have Jonathan in my life. So I will conclude with that, Jonathan. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Feelings mutual and thanks for the opportunity. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you.